Welcome to TSX Quarterly, the podcast that brings you publicly available earnings calls from companies listed on the Toronto Stock Exchange in one convenient location. Gone are the days of looking through confusing websites. You'll find the important information right here. Enjoy the call. This is the conference operator. Welcome to the TC Energy Second Quarter 2021 Results Conference Call. As a reminder, all participants are in listen-only mode and the conference is being recorded. After the presentation, there will be an opportunity to ask questions. To join the question queue, you may press star, then 1 on your telephone keypad. Should you need assistance during the conference call, you may signal an operator by pressing star and zero. I would now like to turn the conference over to David Moneta, Vice President, Investor Relations. Please go ahead. Thanks very much, and good morning, everyone. I'd like to welcome you to TC Energy's 2021 second quarter conference call. Joining me today are Francois Poirier, President and Chief Executive Officer, Don Marchand, Executive Vice President and Chief Financial Officer, Tracy Robinson, President, Canadian Natural Gas Pipelines and President, Coastal Gas Link, Stan Chapman, President, U.S. and Mexico, Natural Gas Pipelines, Bevan Wurzba, Executive Vice President, Strategy and Corporate Development and President, Liquids Pipelines, Corey Hessen, President, Power and Storage, and Glenn Manus, Vice President and Controller. Francois and Don will begin today with some opening comments on our financial results and certain other company developments. A copy of the slide presentation that will accompany their remarks is available on our website. It can be found in the Investors section under Events and Presentations. Following their remarks, we will take questions from the investment community. If you are a member of the media, please contact Jamie Harding after this call. In order to provide everyone from the investment community with an equal opportunity to participate, we ask that you limit yourself to two questions. If you have additional questions, please re-enter the queue. Before Francois begins, I'd like to remind you that our remarks today will include forward-looking statements that are subject to important risks and uncertainties. For more information on these risks and uncertainties, please see the reports filed by TC Energy with Canadian Securities Regulators and with the U.S. Securities Exchange Commission. And finally, during this presentation, we'll refer to measures such as comparable earnings, comparable earnings per share, comparable EBITDA, and comparable funds generated from operations. These and certain other comparable measures are considered to be non-GAAP measures. As a result, they may not be comparable to similar measures presented by other entities. These measures are used to provide additional information on TC Energy's operating performance, liquidity, and its ability to generate funds to finance its operations. With that, I'll turn the call over to Francois. Thanks, David, and good morning, everyone. And I know it's a busy morning with uh, lots of companies reporting, so uh, thank you very much to all of you for joining us today. As outlined in our second quarter report to shareholders, our diversified portfolio of high-quality, long-life energy infrastructure assets continue to meet North America's growing demand for energy. Utilization levels across our network remain strong during this first half of 2021, and that despite energy market volatility, weather events, and the ongoing impacts of COVID-19. Of note, our U.S. natural gas pipeline network moved an average of 26 BCF per day, an increase of 5% over the same period in 2020, while field receipts on NGTL were 12.2 
BCF per day. In our power and storage business, Bruce Power continued to produce solid operating results while our Alberta cogens benefited from increased output due to increased availability and the return to service of our Mackay River facility. Once again, this highlights the essential role our infrastructure plays in the well-being of people across the continent and the functioning of the North American economy. We take this responsibility seriously. And as always, we conducted our business in a safe and reliable manner. Safety is one of our core values and is embedded in the culture of our organization. During the first half of the year, we invested $765 million in maintenance capital as part of our ongoing commitment to pipeline integrity. And our focus on operational excellence and the strong demand for our services is also reflected in our financial performance. Through the first six months of the year, comparable EBITDA, comparable earnings per share, and comparable funds generated from operations all exceeded last year's record results. This is a very good outcome considering the significant decline in the value of the US dollar relative to the Canadian dollar, which negatively impacts our reported EBITDA, as well as the loss of one-time CERTA Texas fees in the first quarter of 2020 and the loss of capitalized interest during construction of KXL. And looking forward, we expect the solid operating and financial performance of our existing assets to continue. Contributing to our performance is Columbia Gas, which recently notified the FERC that it has reached a settlement in principle with its customers addressing all remaining issues related to its Section 4 rate case. We're very pleased that we were able to reach an agreement. While more details will be available once the settlement is filed, we expect 2021 revenue on the system to be generally consistent with the estimates recorded to date. Turning to our capital program, where we remain focused on advancing our now $21 billion of secured growth projects that are expected to enter service by 2025. As is our custom, they are all underpinned by cost of service regulation or long-term contracts, which gives us visibility to the earnings and cash flow they will generate. A substantial portion of this growth portfolio is linked to our irreplaceable natural gas pipeline network, which now includes the VR project on our Columbia gas system. This US $700 million project referenced earlier today in our quarterly report includes the installation of electric compression that will meet growing demand and reduce emissions. This is another great example of our vast network playing an important role in the transition to a lower carbon world by delivering natural gas that will be used to displace coal-fired power and provide a backstop to the intermittency of renewables. Now, a few words on Coastal GasLink. Following the macro events of the past 16 months, including the public health order that limited our project workforce at the beginning of 2021, construction activities have resumed and we are making good progress with close to 50% of the project completed. However, as we've shared previously, costs are expected to increase and that has resulted in a dispute with LNG Canada. While commercial discussions are ongoing and we remain committed to successfully completing the project, 
we are nearing a critical stage that requires resolution of the outstanding issues. Looking beyond our secured capital program, over the mid to longer term, we expect numerous other opportunities to come to fruition as the world both consumes more energy and transitions to a lower carbon energy future. We have significant additional initiatives that are aligned with our strategy, organizational capabilities, risk preferences, and return requirements in various stages of development. These include system expansions, extensions, and modernization programs across our North American natural gas pipeline footprint, electrification opportunities throughout our network, the refurbishment of another five reactors at Bruce Power, two pump storage projects in, in Alberta and Ontario, as well as the Alberta carbon grid. Now, our goal is to build on our long history of disciplined growth while being agnostic to the form of energy that will ultimately lead to a low or carbon energy future. Whether it's renewables and firming resources needed to manage their intermittency, electrifying our fleet, or other emerging technologies, our existing asset base, technical capabilities, innovative approach, and financial strength all mean that we are well positioned to prosper irrespective of the pace or direction energy transition takes. As I've mentioned before, ultimately our goal is to sanction five to six billion dollars annually to deliver on our long-term growth plans, including 1.5 to $2 billion per year of maintenance capital across our extensive network. And based on the project sanctioned to date in 2021 and various other initiatives in late stages of development, we expect to achieve our goal this year. More specifically, in addition to Columbia's VR project and ongoing maintenance on our regulated businesses, we expect a continuation of Columbia Gas's modernization program, as well as the Bruce Power Unit 3 MCR project, which is under consideration to be added to our backlog by the end of this year. And through requests for information, we are identifying potential opportunities in wind, solar, and energy storage projects that could generate 1,000 megawatts of zero carbon energy to meet the electricity needs for a portion of our U.S. pipeline assets. This is an important step in advancing our plans to leverage the power and storage business as a platform for sustainable future growth while lowering emissions across our, natural, our North American footprint. And longer term, the opportunity set is also encouraging. We are engaging with various stakeholders in Ontario to advance the Meaford pump storage opportunity. The project is designed to store emission free electricity and provide backstop to the intermittency associated with the energy provided by renewables. Earlier this week, we reached an agreement with the Department of National Defense that subject to conditions and regulatory approval allows for the development of the multi-billion dollar 1,000 megawatt clean energy storage project on federal lands. Moving forward, we will continue to consult with the Saugeen Ojibwe Nation and other Indigenous rights holders and communities. And we will engage with local communities and other interested stakeholders to assess the potential impacts and economic benefits of the project. 
And finally, we recently announced a partnership with Pembina to jointly develop the Alberta Carbon Grid, a carbon transportation and sequestration system. When fully constructed, it would be capable of transporting more than 20 million tons of CO2 annually, providing Alberta-based industries with an ability to manage their emissions and contribute to a lower carbon economy. In short, I expect we will be opportunity rich and have to allocate capital to those projects that are best aligned with our capabilities, risk preferences, and return requirements. Based on the continued strong performance of our base business and our organic growth plans, we expect to continue to grow our dividend at an average annual rate of 5 to 7%. As always, the growth in dividends is expected to be supported by sustainable growth in earnings and cash flow per share and strong coverage ratios. I am confident that the future opportunity set combined with our capabilities will continue to deliver superior risk-adjusted total shareholder returns well into the future. I'll now turn the call over to Don, who will provide more details on our second quarter financial results. Don? Thanks, Francois, and good morning, everyone. As outlined in our results issued earlier today, net income attributable to common shares was $982 million, or a dollar per share, in the second quarter of 2021, compared to $1.3 billion, or a dollar 36 per share, for the same period in 2020. Second quarter results included a combined $18 million of after-tax charges associated with Keystone XL preservation and other costs, along with a small net revision to the asset impairment taken in quarter one, as well as a $13 million after-tax recovery associated with the Ontario gas-fired power plants sold in 2020. The corresponding period in 2020 also included certain specific items as outlined on the slide and discussed further in our second quarter 2021 report. These specific items, as well as unrealized gains and losses from changes in risk management activities, are excluded from comparable earnings. Comparable earnings for the second quarter were $1 billion, or $1.07 per common share, compared to $863 million, or $0.92 cents per common share in 2020. Turning to our business segment results on slide 10, in the second quarter, comparable EBITDA from our five operating segments of $2.2 billion was similar to 2020, despite strong currency translation headwinds. Canadian Gas Pipeline's comparable EBITDA of $684 million was $63 million higher than second quarter 2020, primarily on account of increased rate-based earnings as well as higher flow-through depreciation and income taxes on the NGTL system. Coastal gas link development fee revenue, which commenced in mid-second quarter 2020, and a modest net increase from the Canadian mainline. NGTL system net income rose $16 million year-over-year, mainly due to a higher average investment base resulting from continued system expansions, and reflects an ROE of 10.1% on 40% deemed common equity. Net income for the Canadian mainline increased $14 million, largely due to higher incentive earnings, and the elimination of a $20 million after-tax annual TC Energy contribution included in the previous NEB 2014 decision. U.S. gas pipeline's comparable EBITDA of $717 million U.S. in the second quarter was higher by $122 million U.S. compared to 2020. This was driven by a net increase in earnings from Columbia Gas following its application for higher transportation rates effective February 1, 2021, 
subject to refund upon completion of the rate proceeding, along with greater capitalized pipeline integrity costs in 2021 compared to 2020, partially offset by higher property taxes. Yesterday, Columbia notified FERC that it had reached a settlement in principle with its customers. While definitive terms are still being finalized, 2021 revenue is expected to be generally consistent with estimates recorded to date. In addition, earnings across our U.S. gas pipelines were generally higher following the cold weather events of first quarter 2021, which impacted many of the U.S. markets we serve. Mexico gas pipelines comparable EBITDA of $134 million U.S., rose $4 million U.S. versus last year, primarily as a result of increased earnings on Guadalajara following the implementation of a flow reversal completed in 2020. Liquids pipelines comparable EBITDA declined by $66 million to $366 million in the second quarter due to lower volumes on Keystone, partially offset by increased contributions from liquids marketing activities, mainly attributable to higher margins and volumes. Power and storage comparable EBITDA in the second quarter rose by $22 million, primarily due to increased Bruce Power results, driven by higher volumes resulting from fewer outage days and a higher contract price, partially offset by increased operating expenses. Natural gas storage and other also contributed to the increase as a result of our November 2020 acquisition of the remaining 50% ownership interest in TC turbines and higher realized Alberta natural gas storage spreads. For all our businesses with U.S. dollar-denominated income, including U.S. and Mexico gas pipelines and parts of liquids pipelines, EBITDA was translated into Canadian dollars using an average exchange rate of 123 in second quarter 21, compared to 139 for the same period in 2020. While overall U.S. dollar-denominated comparable EBITDA increased by U.S. $105 million, the year-over-year weakening of the currency was a considerable drag on comparative 2021 Canadian dollar reported EBITDA. That said, the corresponding impact on comparable earnings was not significant due to offsetting natural and economic hedges. As a result, our U.S. dollar-denominated revenue streams are, in part, naturally hedged by U.S. dollar-denominated amounts below comparable EBITDA within depreciation and amortization, interest expense, and other income statement line items. We then actively manage the residual exposure on a rolling two-year forward basis with realized gains and losses on this program reflected in comparable interest income and other. Now turning to the other income statement items in slide 11, depreciation and amortization of $633 million was in line with second quarter 2020. Interest expense of $577 million was $16 million higher year over year, largely due to the net effect of lower capitalized interest due to its cessation for the Keystone XL pipeline project, the change to equity accounting for a coastal gas link investment in second quarter 2020, long-term debt issuances net of maturities, lower interest rates on reduced levels of short-term borrowings, and the foreign exchange impact from a weaker U.S. dollar on translation of U.S. dollar-denominated interest. AFUDC decreased $17 million compared to the same period in 2020, principally due to the suspension of recording it on Villa de Reyes, effective January 1 of this year, partially offset by increased capital expenditures on ANR and a higher balance of NGTL system expansion projects under construction. Comparable interest income and other rose $151 million in the second quarter, 
mainly due to realized gains in 2021 compared to realized losses in 2020 on derivatives used to manage our net exposure to foreign exchange rate movements on U.S. dollar-denominated income. Income tax expense included in comparable earnings was $175 million in second quarter 2021 compared to $125 million for the same period last year, with the $50 million increase mainly due to higher flow-through income taxes on Canadian rate-regulated pipelines and increased earnings, partially offset by higher foreign income tax rate differentials. Excluding Canadian rate-regulated pipelines, where income taxes are a flow-through item and thus quite variable, along with equity AFUDC income and U.S. gas pipelines, we continue to expect our 2021 full-year effective tax rate to be in the mid to high teens. Comparable net income attributable to non-controlling interests of $6 million decreased by $57 million relative to the same period last year, primarily as a result of the March 3, 2021 buy-in of TC Pipelines LP. And finally, preferred share dividends of $32 million were $8 million lower than second quarter 2020, mainly due to the redemption of Series 13 preferred shares on May 31, 2021. Now turning to slide 12. During the second quarter, comparable funds generated from operations totaled $1.8 billion, and we invested $1.4 billion in our capital program. As noted, at the end of May, we redeemed all of our issued and outstanding Series 13 preferred shares using proceeds from our junior subordinated debt offering completed in March 2021. In June, we completed a three-tranche offering of MTNs in Canada comprised of $750 million of three-year floating rate notes, $500 million of 10-year notes at 2.97%, and $250 million of 26-year notes at 4.33%. Also in June, the U.S. $840 million outstanding on the Keystone XL project-level credit facility consolidated on our balance sheet was fully repaid by the Government of Alberta under the terms of their guarantee and the facility terminated. We also repurchased their ownership interests in KXL and issued securities entitling the government to certain project liquidation proceeds as realized. Collectively, this resulted in an after-tax net recovery of approximately $1.1 billion being recognized, which was credited directly to equity and serves to partially offset the $2.2 billion after-tax impairment charge recorded in the first quarter. Now turning to slide 13. This graphic illustrates our forecasted sources and uses of funds for 2021 through 2023. Starting in the left column, our total requirements over the three years are projected to be approximately $29.5 billion, reflecting dividends of $11 billion, capital expenditures including maintenance capital of $16 billion, $2 billion attributed to the TC Pipeline's LP acquisition completed in March, and the Series 13 preferred share redemption to $500 million in May. The second column highlights expected internally generated cash flow of $21 billion, $2 billion of common shares issued pursuant to the Pipe LP buy-in, $1.5 billion of MTNs issued in June, and the $500 million junior subordinated notes offering completed in March. That leaves a residual need of approximately $4.5 billion depicted in the far right column, and we expect to fund that through a combination of incremental debt, commercial paper, and Keystone XL project recoveries. The program excludes the normal course refinancing of scheduled debt maturities 
and is consistent with our goal of maintaining debt to EBITDA in the high fours and FFO to debt of 15%. Now turning to slide 14. In closing, our solid operational and financial results once again highlight our resilient, diversified, low-risk portfolio, the criticality of our irreplaceable infrastructure, as well as the contribution of new high-quality assets from our ongoing capital program. With our enduring business model, financial strength, organizational capabilities, and unparalleled footprint, we are poised to tap a vast opportunity set that is thematically aligned with both today's needs and the world-shifting energy mix, as well as being consistent with our long-standing risk preferences and return requirements. This is expected to perpetuate our multi-decade track record of prudent value creation and support annual dividend growth of 5 to 7% into the future. That's the end of my prepared remarks. I'll now turn the call back over to David for the Q&A. Thanks, Don. Uh, Just a reminder before I turn it over to the conference coordinator for questions from the investment community, we ask that you limit yourself to two questions. If you have additional questions, please re-enter the queue. With that, I'll turn it over to the conference coordinator. Thank you. We will now begin the question and answer session. To join the question queue, you may press star, then one on your telephone keypad. You will hear a tone acknowledging your request. If you are using a speakerphone, please pick up your handset before pressing any keys. To withdraw your question, please press star, then two. We will pause for a moment as callers join the queue. Our first question comes from Robert Kwan of RBC Capital Markets. Please go ahead. Great. Good morning. Um, My first question relates to the VR project, but more so taking a step back. You've got 700 million U.S. for this, and this is just Columbia. Have you looked at how big these types of opportunities can be across your entire system? And what was the trigger for this going forward? Was it really more so about the capacity expansion? Are you seeing from your shippers a real demand uh, to electrify the system so they can reduce their their scope to emissions? Hey, Robert, this is Stan. I could take a stab at that. And I would say it's really multi-factored. Um, There is incremental volumes and an incremental need uh, in this particular project. Um, At the same point in time, uh, focusing on our our emissions and reducing our emissions while we're providing additional throughput to our customers is something that's important to us. And we think that we can do that um, not only by installing electric compression across our system, but also doing it in conjunction with Corey's team and making sure that he's providing the power and, and most likely green power at the end of the day. In terms of um, how big this could be going forward, you know, it is part of our overall um, drive to reduce our emissions footprint both across the, uh, the country and the continent. And we have uh, 13 pipelines that we uh, own or operate here in the U.S. And uh, you know, my expectation is uh, in any given year, on any given pipeline, we can have uh, you know, one or two of these projects. And that, that's what we're going to challenge ourselves to, uh, to be successful in reducing emissions going forward. Okay, so just sorry, when you say one or two of these projects, you're talking about an announcement, so something in that 700 million U.S. range? Well, again, the, the, the dollar amount is going to fluctuate depending upon the specifics of the case, but I think the expectation would be one or two projects per year over the next several years. Now, what pipeline that's on is going to be determinative of many things, uh, including you know, where the additional load is going to come from, um, where we have the best opportunity to uh, add electric compression with respect to proximity to poles and wires and the like. 
Hey, that's great. Um, just on the second question here, for the coastal gas link dispute, can you just talk a little bit more, elaborate on the nature and the scope, and maybe more um, importantly to you, is there anything in the, the sell-down uh, agreement where there could be a clawback of, of the proceeds you've received? Uh, good morning, it's Tracy here. Um, I'll take that one. I know that there's likely to be a number of, of questions on the dispute, the status of the project and what the potential impact may be. Uh, let me say this, we are in a disagreement with LNG Canada over the alignment of costs and schedule. We've been in discussions for some time now and, and those discussions do continue. They are confidential. Uh, we do have our equity partners involved. Um, um, because they are all confidential, we're unable to share any details at this time. I can say that uh, they're progressing, uh, but if we're not able to reach a resolution in the near term, then uh, there will be some implications to our construction. It's an important project, Coastal GasLink. Um, you know, we're in full execution now. We have more than 5,000 people working in the corridor. Execution's going well. We have a strong safety record. We want to continue um, construction, and I, we do remain, I think, very hopeful that it, you know, we'll have a fair and reasonable outcome, and at that point in time, we'll be able to share a few more of the details um, that you mentioned. Okay, that's great. Um, that's all I have, and John, hopefully you're happy to get this last one out of the way, and I let you off easy. Oh, Robert, thanks. Uh, no, this is the highlight of the week again here. So, uh, <laughs> thanks, Robert. Great, thanks. Our next question comes from Linda Ezergalis of TD Securities. Please go ahead. Thank you. Before I ask my question, I want to wish Don all the best uh, in his retirement and a big congratulations for a very successful career. Thanks, Linda. Uh, so in terms of uh, the Ontario pump storage project, um, uh, some developments recently on that front, uh, can you talk a little bit about uh, the steps and, and timeline and what sort of commercial attributes and ownership uh, um, uh, you would be looking for and as well as how it might be financed from a, from a capitalization uh, consideration as well. Hi, Linda. This is Corey Hessen. Uh, a couple things. Number one, we're very, very pleased that uh, we were able to reach an agreement uh, recently with the DND on uh, the first step to gaining uh, site access. So we have some uh, technical steps that we'll follow here in the coming uh, months in order to meet their needs to ensure that the site remains operational for the DND. In parallel with that happening, we will be working with uh, our counterparties to uh, secure the commercial under, uh, underpinnings for this particular facility. So we're really running a two-pronged approach for the, the next coming months as we continue the development of this project. And uh, as we go forward, we'll be working collaboratively as well with our partners, at, uh, local stakeholders, and the SON, who are all active participants in the process. As far as your question was concerned regarding the uh, capital structure, it's a little early days for us to have thought through that entirely. We have to understand more clearly what the commercial underpinnings will be, and once we understand that more clearly, we'll be able to work diligently with our external partners to, to figure out a structure that works for everyone involved. Yeah, Linda, it's Don. I'll just uh, supplement uh, 
Corey's remarks on the financing. Again, early days, um, but you know, we conceive First Nation ownership here. This is the project. Uh, whether it's a, a finance at the project level or uh, or up above here uh, would lend itself to green bond financing and there were significant tax um, uh, benefits introduced in the most recent Canadian federal budget. So that all have to be taken into account as we, uh, we figure out where and, and how to finance this. Thank you. Uh, as a follow-on question, uh, given all the opportunities uh, you're facing in terms of energy transition, and um, beyond considering your uh, earnings and cash flow growth, uh, which uh, should support the 5 to 7% dividend growth, I'm just wondering how other considerations might factor into uh, the cadence uh, of dividend growth potentially uh, shifting over time, including if there's, if there's tax changes, investor preferences might change, et cetera. Linda, I'll take that one. Uh, you know, our goal, as always, as we think about our value proposition, is that uh, we deliver uh, you know, a moderately growing and, uh, and stable uh, dividend underpinned by a commensurate growth in earnings and cash flow. Uh, we've targeted uh, a payout ratio of uh, 80 to 85% of earnings and 40 to 45% um, uh, of cash flow uh, per share. And um, you know that in turn delivers um, you know a stable balance sheet, and um, um, uh, allows us to have the dry powder to be opportunistic to the extent any you know acquisitions uh, you know become available. So I don't see any uh, changes in that uh, in that uh, value proposition going forward. Uh, as you perhaps intimated, and in my prepared remarks, we are seeing an acceleration in the opportunity set. Uh, uh, you, you've seen uh, the fruit of that here in our announcement uh, with the VR project. You can expect additional um, uh, projects to be sanctioned, as per my comments, throughout the balance of the year. And uh, you know, to the extent uh, the opportunity set continues to grow, as our expectation is that it will over time, um, you know, perhaps we'll uh, consider opportunities to relook at capital allocation. But for the time being, uh, it's. Uh, you know, uh, business as usual here, and the, you know the tried and true capital allocation framework that you're um, accustomed to seeing from us. Thank you. Thanks, Linda. Our next question comes from Jeremy Tonnet of J.P. Morgan. Please go ahead. Hi. Good morning. Morning, Jeremy. And. And, and Don, you will be missed. I hope uh, Joel has the same good sense of humor as, as he did. Uh, but uh, that's a lot going forward. Um, Thanks, Sharon. But uh, you know, maybe I just wanted to start off with the uh, Alberta carbon grid and wondering, you know, it's obviously very early days here, but what you might be able to say as far as stakeholder reaction when you put out that announcement, um, you know, what type of conversations you're having, you know, what what do you think is possible? Hi, Jeremy. It's uh, Bevan here. Um, you know, we've had we're very pleased with the customer engagement that we've had to date and the, the industry feedback. Obviously, without being able to clarify exactly what uh, the carbon hub will look like or will evolve to, um, you know, there there are a lot of proponents in industry advancing. Um, their own pursuit of energy transition. And so right now we're working in partnership with all our customers and with industry to advance 
Um, since our initial announcement of the carbon grid, we've been progressing our engineering and scoping work as well as filing our applications under the Government of Alberta sequestration process. But I think the, you know, the project itself is a great example uh, further to Linda's question on taking, taking our existing asset base and, and seeing how it can be utilized or repurposed as we pursue energy transition opportunities in the portfolio. Get ahead of postage rate increases this year with Stamps.com. It's like your own personal post office. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a four-week trial plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com code PROGRAM. Got it. That's uh, helpful there. Um, and, and just wanted to maybe touch on capital allocation a little bit more, talking about you know new opportunities kind of materializing here. Uh, and, and just wondering how you think about you know the payout ratio with, within the context of um, these new opportunities, and I guess you know needs for equity overall. Um, do, do you feel that the stock is getting credit for kind of the five to seven percent uh, dividend growth uh, that, that you're talking about here? Would it at any point make sense to kind of ratchet down the payout ratio uh, or that growth rate it, given kind of these new opportunities, as you said? Just trying to you know um, put all these things together here. Yeah, appreciate that question. Um, you know, again, uh, you know, as I as I mentioned uh, earlier with respect to Linda's question, um, it, you know, we have a tried and true capital allocation model that's been uh, successful um, for many decades and allowed us to deliver a 13% um, annual total shareholder return over that period of time. So, uh, you know, stability and predictability in terms of our approach uh, to capital allocation is important. Um, if we see an opportunity to earn an outsized return um, and create more value for our shareholders by retaining uh, additional cash flow, it's something that we would give consideration to. Uh, we think the balance of 40% uh, um, uh, of our earnings going back to our shareholders in the form of a dividend and 60% being reinvested in the business is a reasonable balance. And, um, uh, you know, Having said that, to the extent opportunities arise for us to invest beyond our free cash flow, uh, we're, we hold share count very jealously. But to the extent those opportunities occur, um, uh, we would uh, we'd consider um, issuing equity or perhaps retaining a, a greater portion of our cash flow. But as I said, um, the model um, has um, uh, you know has served us well over the last couple of decades, and our expectation is that we will continue along this line. I'll just clarify: 40% of cash flow, not earnings, oh, being uh, me. being uh, paid <laughs> out. So, uh, <laughs> thank you. That's helpful. I'll leave it there. Thank you. Okay. Thanks, Jeremy. Thank Our next question comes from Ben Pham of BMO. Please go ahead. Hi. Right, thanks. Good morning. I had a question on the renewable energy RFI as you go through evaluation, move to an RFP. Are you able to share? Maybe any sort of qualitative thoughts you're you're seeing from the interest levels, or anything that's that's surprising you so far? Hi Ben, this is Corey. Uh, I can give you some uh, quantitative feedback, I think, which is uh, uh, pretty interesting and and uh, shows the level and the size of the opportunity that's uh, available to us at TC Energy as part of the energy transition. As you know, we uh, had sort of two components 
to the RFI. One was a wind component and one is a solar plus storage component uh, totaling about one gigawatt of requests. We had 54 individual projects totaling 16.6 .6 gigawatts of bids submitted uh, for wind, which is about 27 times the, uh, the request. Uh, and on the solar and storage side, we had 66 individual projects totaling about 12.4 gigawatts of bids submitted, which is about 40 times the amount of demand that we went to the market with. We are currently at a phase where we are down selecting those projects and entering definitive negotiations with the projects that best meet the criteria uh, for our customers, our stakeholders, and our shareholders. And we expect in the coming months we will be able to announce those projects that we have chosen to move forward with. That's incredible. None of demand. Okay. Thanks for the update on that. Um, and then on um, uh, maybe me on your, your liquids segment, uh, either to comment on your thoughts on the short-term outlook on, on the volumes and, and maybe maybe just important your, your longer-term outlook relative to some of the maybe some of the guidance you, you highlighted in, in the past and the liquid segment. Yeah, Ben, thank you. It's Bevan here. Um, you know, our pipeline ex Hardesty down to the Gulf Coast um, has been at capacity, um, leaving uh, the supply basin here in Western Canada. Um, as we pick up volumes in Cushing to take to the Gulf Coast or into the Midwest, we've seen uh, a continued um, ARB compression between um, the Midwest and Cushing and the Gulf Coast as we saw supply volumes increase out of the Permian and really a compression in the export markets. And so we see that that outlook persist here over the balance of the back half of this year and likely into early next year. Um, we have seen producers increase supply with the run up of commodity prices in various basins. Um, however, our liquid segment is really driven by uh, the ARBs between ex-Hardesty and ex-Cushing into our refining markets. Okay, that's great. Thanks, Ben. Thanks, for Okay, thanks, Ben. Our next question comes from Robert Catelier of CIBC World Markets. Please go ahead. Hi, thank you. I, I just wanted to uh, follow up a little bit on uh, Coastal GasLink. Uh, understanding there's limitations to what you can say, but um, yeah, clearly an important project for the industry. And I'm curious as to when you believe you have to have this uh, dispute resolved in order to avoid having a, a work suspension. And, uh, you know, just following on that thought, uh, it sounds like you're still using commercial means to resolve the uh, dispute, but uh, is the idea of mediation or arbitration a possibility here? Uh, thanks, Robert. I'm happy to take that question. Uh, you know, we are, as you say, uh, in, in discussions and commercial discussions, uh, and right now we're focused on that as the mechanism to resolve um, the disagreement between us. Uh, you know, there's a number of... Um, you know, details going across the table on that, but, um, you know, as I said before, it is the subject of uh, some confidential dialogue with our customer. Our main focus, we're focusing really on two things. 
One is resolving the disagreement uh, on cost and schedule as quickly as possible. And the other is ensuring that the pipeline is constructed in a safe and uh, cost-effective manner and that it's in service on a timeline that aligns with you know, the current schedule uh, for the facility in, in Kitimat. Uh, so we're pretty focused on that. Uh, and uh, we're hopeful that we're going to get a, um, you know, a reasonable and fair outcome here in, in the near term. Okay. Um, switching then to, to Bruce, um, same type of question. Uh, if you could provide a little bit of color on the, uh, uh, the return to service date for Bruce 3, um, understanding that part of that's probably not in your control. Um, do you have a rough, rough estimate as to the timeline as to when that can be resolved? Hi, Robert, it's Corey. Uh, you know, we are in process responding to the July 26 order uh, from the CNSC. So we will be following the process and the procedures as laid out by the CNSC. And once we receive the first bit of feedback from the CNSC uh, regarding our response, we'll be able to provide more color. But what I would say is the plants are operating safely, reliably, effectively, Unit 3 is offline right now, and we are in process following the CNSC's order uh, to the letter and expect a positive outcome. Okay, thank you. Thanks, Rob. Our next question comes from Rob Hope of Scotiabank. Please go ahead. Good uh, morning, everyone. Uh, first question on the Columbia settlement. Not sure how much you can kind of talk here, but uh, can you just maybe highlight some of the key issues that you received some resolution as you expected? And then can you remind us, you know, how much of a revenue uplift you have been booking so far this year? Yeah, Rob, this is Stan. I'll, I'll tell you what I can, which is, you know, obviously you heard that we uh, notified FERC yesterday of uh, our plans to suspend the procedural schedule, which is the way we tell FERC that we have a settlement in principle with our customers. Uh, the actual details I really can't get into until we file the settlement. That will be sometime most likely in September and October or October. But uh, all issues that were addressed in the settlement or in the rate case are addressed in the settlement. Uh, including things like rate levels um, and the continuation of our, our modernization program. Um, again, I'll tell you that the, the settlement is, is in line with the ex our expectations, that the revenue and the earnings are very consistent with uh, the estimates that we have recorded and reported to date. But again, I can't give you uh, hard numbers just yet. But with respect to the modernization program, I can tell you that it is um, it's generally consistent with our prior programs, both in terms of structure and size. And it really is a great example of uh, the value of pipe in the ground and, and how it can be optimized. Um, the, the, the settlement process took a little bit longer than we would have liked for two reasons. Uh, one, this was our, our first rate case in 20 years, and there were a myriad of issues that needed to be addressed. And then secondly, uh, you know, given the pandemic, we had to uh, do all of our negotiating virtually, which was a bit um, inefficient. So again, if you just bear with me until we get the settlement on file, maybe we can get some of those questions answered then, but uh, really I'm thankful to our, to our customers and FERC staff for their, their contributions in making this settlement happen. All right, I appreciate that and look forward to some additional details in September. Um, okay, pivoting over to the RFI for the renewable projects, as well as how you're looking at kind of your cost of capital and kind of the attractiveness of projects. When you take a look at the, you know, the vast amount of projects that came in, you know, how much or what percentage of that could 
uh, we see, you know, TC Energy invest capital into rather than just contract uh, for energy. Hi, Rob. It's Corey. I'll take uh, I'll, I'll take uh, an opening shot at this, and if Don or Francois want to comment, I'll I'll see to them as well. But you know, the way we're thinking about it is each individual project uh, in each individual jurisdiction is being measured on its uh, own merits, and so uh, as we think about jurisdictions. Uh, and we think about how the ISO operates in each of those jurisdictions, it's going to have a bearing on our view of how we can participate in that market. That being said, we are see ourselves as the long-term owner and operator of assets. We've been doing it uh, for a very long time, and we take great pride in being uh, an industry-leading operator. So I think that we will have a blend of both, uh, but it's a little premature until we evaluate each individual project on its merits to to, to sort of uh, uh, decide what that mix might be. But I'll cede it over to Francois or Don if they have any additional comments. Yeah, perhaps uh, you know the only point I'll add to that, Corey, is that um, um, obviously we have an obligation to deliver uh, the lowest cost. Um, uh, you know, acquisition of power uh, as part of our agreement with our shippers, and uh, we see an opportunity here to uh, lower those costs. And uh, that is, you know, uh, in addition to an opportunity for us to lower our emissions, it is an opportunity for us to lower our variable costs for our customers. So we're very, very excited about that. Excellent. Appreciate the color. And Don, all the best. It's uh, been fun over the years. It has, Rob. Thanks very much. Our next question comes from Andrew Kuski of Credit Suisse. Please go ahead. Thanks. Good morning. Um, obviously, the topic of clean fuels is a big one, and it's pretty broad-based. And, and I'm just sort of curious on your thought process on how does TC Energy fit into the that investment theme you know, across your value chain? Is it across the entire value chain of your assets, really, from wellhead or mine face in some cases of customers uh, to CityGate or burner tip? or do you view it in a more targeted fashion? I'll provide some high-level comments. And, uh, you know, on the question of renewable natural gas, I'll ask Stan uh, after my remarks to maybe provide a couple of, uh, you know, uh, thematic points. And I think, uh, Andrew, the, the short answer is it's across our entire asset base. What we've learned as we look at, um, you know, carbon capture and storage uh, as we look at, uh, at hydrogen, as we look at renewable natural gas, a fundamental aspect of being a participant in those markets as they develop is the ability to store and transport a molecule, which is, of course, our core business. So when you look at our footprint, the basins we serve, and the markets we serve, we actually see opportunities across the entire footprint for us uh, to play a role. Uh, now, in some instances, uh, you know, those opportunities are many, many years away. I would say from the perspective of hydrogen, for example, uh, we're still at the stage where we are investigating uh, the technologies and the potential from a safety standpoint. Of course, safety is our number one value, and we want to make sure that, um, you know, uh, the injection of hydrogen into our pipelines uh, will not cause any embrittlement issues. Uh, and uh, it can be safely uh, transported across our systems. But uh, you're exactly right. Um, 
our footprint on a broad-based basis will present opportunities for us across the board. Yeah, and maybe just to, this is Stan, just to tag on to that, uh, you know, clean fuels come in many different sizes and shapes and colors, uh, one of them being renewable natural gas. And you may recall that uh, we had a goal this year to double the amount of renewable natural gas we're taking into our system from 2BCF to 4BCF and to double it again next year from 4 to 8. Now, we're actually on track to, to exceed that, exceed it in a, in a very big way, I think, by the end of of 22 or early 23, we'll have about 30 BCF of uh, renewable natural gas coming into our system. And uh, we're, we're doing this by, by overlaying our pipeline footprint against uh, you know, landfill operators, for example, where this renewable natural gas is biogas is actually created. So I think that there is a significant opportunity to, to continue to take advantage of things like renewable natural gas. And in the end, you know, it just really reinforces our thoughts that our future is one of natural gas and renewables and that we can work together. That's very helpful. And, and, and then maybe just in a, a bit of an extension of the question, but maybe a particular focus just to let's call it old style hydrocarbons. And, you know, we're, away, we're ways away from budget season coming up for most of the producers. But what's the sentiment from really your clients on drilling activity and outlook? Obviously, commodity prices are elevated, but how do you think about that? It's probably more a question for, for Stan and for Tracy. Yeah, I, I, I can start. Go ahead, Stan. Go ahead, go ahead Tracy. Uh, I'll, I'll go okay. ahead and start with respect to what's going on in the U.S. You know, one thing, if, if you're watching uh, NYMEX prices of lately, you're seeing that there's a lot of uh, $4 prints uh, in the, over the next uh, four, five, or six months, which is something that's new. So all things equal, that's an incentive for producers to continue to drill. And what we're seeing is uh, producers doing exactly that. Appalachian production is up to around 34 BCF. A lot of them focusing on what they would call responsibly sourced natural gas. That's becoming more and more of, of a theme these days. So I think that you'll continue to see production growth, particularly out of the Appalachian Basin. I think you'll see it done in a responsible way with a focus on emissions. And again, just get back to this theme, I think that we can do this in a way that uh, natural gas and renewables can work together. And I'll follow up on that, Andrew. Uh, same kinds of things are going on in Canada. And of course, we have the added element here of the prospect of, uh, you know, carbon tax, pretty significant carbon tax. And so we do see industry focused on emissions reduction. Carbon tax would drive incremental kind of operating costs. Uh, and we are as well. It's a, a nature, it's a, the nature of a dialogue um, that's uh, pretty consistent in, in front of desk between us. So we have methane reduction program going on and we're investigating the system's potential to reduce emissions through electrification, waste heat investments, and those, those types of things. Um, it is Im important to note that they're focusing on it, we're focusing on it. This energy transition provides meaningful opportunities for you know, investment in our system as we go forward, whether it's through reduction of emissions or the transition to, uh, to new energies. We are focused on doing that in a manner that preserves the competitiveness of, in, in our case, the WCSB and the continental market and ultimately into the LNG markets. Um, but the best way to mitigate that impact on carbon price uh, is through investments uh, that lower emissions as we go forward. That's very helpful. Thank you. Thanks, Andrew. Our next question comes from Patrick Kenny of National Bank Financial. Please go ahead. Hey, good morning, everybody. Um, I just wanted to touch on this this recent trend of Canadian gas producers looking to secure long-term market access to the Gulf Coast and international pricing, and of course, you know, contracting with yourselves down the main line and and A and R. 
just curious how meaningful this trend could be um, in terms of financial upside for you. And then I guess on the flip side, how you might be thinking about mitigating any impact on your Eastern mainline system from perhaps less Alberta gas flowing into Ontario over time. Happy to take that, Patrick. So, uh, you know, what we do know is natural gas demand, you know, is forecasted to, to continue to grow in the coming decades globally, and LNG Canada is going to, or LNG rather, is going to be an important component of global energy demand and transition. So North America is positioned really well uh, to participate in that growth, whether it's, you know, through the Gulf Coast or whether it's, um, you know, whether it's uh, off the west coast of Canada. We have a, um, a very strong portfolio of highly integrated interconnected assets across Canada, U.S., and Mexico. Um, so we sit on top of the WCSB and the Marcellus positions us well to participate. Uh, we can get to the Gulf Coast through the U.S. assets. Uh, we can get to the West Coast. Uh, and what the opportunity is for us is even if you know, we want to direct, um, provide direct access to LNG facilities, but there's also opportunity to fill the void um, left by gas leaving the, the continent. So we are looking to provide as much access as we can uh, to any global market uh, as we go forward. I would say the opportunity to go down south to the U.S. right now with available capacity, the opportunity to do more is somewhat limited, uh, but we'll continue to work with our customers, both Stan and I, uh, to take advantage of um, whatever capacity and uh, whatever market opportunity we see. Okay, that's great. Thank you very much. Thanks, Pat. Our next question comes from Matt Taylor of Tudor Pickering Holt & Co. Please go ahead. Yeah, thanks for taking my question here. Um, I wanted to start first on, on your focus on the U.S. for renewable development. Can you uh, explain what needs to change in Canada on the regular st regulatory side for you to start focusing on electrification of Compressor stations of looking at renewable opportunities tied into NGTL uh, or the main line, which I believe you said you're really just focused on the U.S. right now. Perhaps I'll start, and then yeah. uh, Corey can oh. uh, uh, Corey can uh, can uh, provide additional comment uh, with respect to electrification um, of uh, of compression uh, within the, our Canada gas system. You know, our obligation with a prescribed rate of return uh, uh, is to deliver the least cost alternative. Uh, currently, that least cost alternative uh, in most instances um, is to deliver uh, or to build gas turbines to deliver the service. As um, the uh, carbon tax uh, potentially escalates over time, um, we would be reassessing uh, what, uh, uh, you know, technology meets the standard of least cost alternative. And we do believe that, um, uh, you know, th that inflection point is somewhere around 50 or $60 a ton where there would be a clear economic advantage to, uh, uh, to um, uh, uh, designing uh, an increased amount of uh, compressor stations with electric motors. We also have to factor in reliability. We also have to factor in proximity to uh, poles and wires to, to supply uh, the power to, to electric motors at compressor stations. And, uh, of course, um, you know, to the extent there are other regulatory accommodations, uh, you know, to perhaps even include some of the generation uh, into rate base, um, that would also, I think, help accelerate the, that development. So those are the two things that, that uh, I see uh, on that question. Matt and Corey, is there anything else you want to add to that? 
Yeah, Matt, the only thing I would add is that um, you got to pick a place to start. And in the U.S., we have, you know, really a, a, a significant opportunity with the current uh, uh, financial models in place. And so we are taking the lessons we're learning about uh, the process in the U.S., and then we'll actively apply those lessons learned to our opportunity set in Canada. That's great. Thank you. Maybe one follow-up for you, Francois. You mentioned uh, that, that it's tied to the least cost alternative. I'm just curious on your thoughts, whether or not, you know, educating government here or even lobbying, if Canada is serious about meeting our carbon emission objectives, if, if in fact, that is the right way to be looking about this, looking at this. I mean, we, we can make the argument carbon taxes could still be viewed very politically. So perhaps, um, maybe not just looking at the least cost alternative is the right way to, to be looking at this longer term. So we are in conversation, you know, th you know, either directly or through industry associations um, with, uh, you know, regulators to the extent it's appropriate, uh, of course, outside of specific uh, project conversations, uh, as well as various levels of government. Uh, I can tell you, you know, from my perspective, the policy landscape is evolving very rapidly, and you know uh, these are very complex questions that take some time uh, to uh, implement in a you know in a thoughtful manner. All participants, whether they are our customers or ourselves, the regulators and governments, all have the same objective in mind, which is to deliver energy reliably and responsibly, uh, minimize our emissions, and do it at, uh, in an affordable fashion at the, at the lowest possible cost. But it will simply take some time because of the velocity of policy change for, for that to be implemented in a practical manner. That's great. Thanks for that. That's it for me. Thanks, Matt. Our next question comes from Becca Fullowill of U.S. Capital Advisors. Please go ahead. Morning, guys. Just following up on that issue of reliability and electric compression for gas pipelines. So most battery storage is about four hours. And so how do you handle the reliability issue on gas pipelines in putting in um, electric compression? Hey, I'll Becca, ask. this is... Yeah, yeah I, I could take that, Francois. Actually, what we're doing with uh, the VR project, for example, is putting in a dual drive that is both uh, gas and electric driven. So, for example, uh, when you have electric power to the station, the electric motor will spin. If you have a loss of electric power, then the gas unit will kick in, and effectively there's a, there's a clutch that will then drive the electric motor. So you, you have 100% reliability with respect to these dual drives that we're putting in. It's not just an electric unit. Does that make sense? Gotcha. That was that makes sense, yeah, but that's what most people are doing. I just, the way this read, I was like, oh, maybe that's not good for a pipeline. Um, and then um, just to clarify, this is independent investment. This is not investment that you would put in rate base. Under the current compact in all of our jurisdictions, these uh, investments in terms of renewables would be in our unregulated affiliate that uh, our power and storage business that Corey runs and, uh, you know, enter into arm's length, uh, commercial arrangements uh, with the regulated affiliates. Gotcha. Thank you. And then on, on the Alberta carbon grid, just is that dependent? At, was that dependent at all on the Pembina interpipeline merger? Was some of the pipelines from interpipeline being used in that? And how does that the, the termination of that impact the project? It, it, 
Yeah, Becca, thanks for the question. This is Bevan. You know, the, our, us as partners with PEMINA, we, we remain focused in developing this world-scale carbon transportation system. Um, and both of us as partners uh, have an extensive network of pipelines that can rely on the project. And it's not just specific pipelines, but it's corridors and interconnections. And so we believe that we can leverage our, our both of our asset bases, as well as work with other industry partners uh, to fulfill the development of the full grid. So, so the interpipeline merger breaking apart has no impact on the project? At this time, no, it, it wouldn't, you know, we're still in very early stages of pulling together all the pieces of the lines that would contribute. Um, and, you know, where, there, if um, in the, in the outcome that uh, Brookfield is successful with the inter interpipe acquisition, you know, we'll definitely look to work with them as well to see if they can also be part of this industry solution. Great, thank you. Thanks, Becca. Our next question comes from Michael Lapides of Goldman Sachs. Please go ahead. Hey guys, thank you for taking my question. Um, real quick, kind of buried in the release was the detail about Unit 3 on Bruce and the hydrogen pressure levels. And I know you mentioned that you didn't think it was material to your cash flows. Just curious, what what are you seeing technically right now that gives you that conviction? Uh, I'm just thinking about the history of North America over the last 10 or 15 years when some of the other plants, some in, on the U.S. side of the border had you know, pretty major issues that actually started with what people thought were pretty minor things when they were uh, undergoing outages. I, I'd love to know just, you know, kind of what at this early stage gives you that insight to think it's uh, not something more serious at Unit 3. Hi, Michael. It's Corey. You know, I, I don't want to speak for uh, the executive management team at, at Bruce Power about technical issues, but what I can say is that the issue was identified and that we are following a systematic process as identified by the CNSC on how to manage this effectively. And uh, we have done a fair amount of R&D at the site and amongst all the CANDU operators to uh, resolve the issue. And so until the, uh, the, the CNSC process is complete, you know, I, I don't want to comment on exactly what the technical resolution is. I'm really not qualified, and I don't think anybody on our team is really qualified in a way that's meaningful to, to answer that question. Got it. Okay. And But you're confident at this point that it's something that's just isolated to Unit 3 and it doesn't impact any of the other units there? What I would say is that the Unit 3 design is a bit different than the other units. And so the impact on Unit 3 uh, is different than what it would be on those other units. Got it. Thank, thank you. Much appreciated, guys. Thanks, Michael. Our next question comes from Alex Kania of Wolf Research. Please go ahead. Great, thanks. Um, I just had one question. I know I guess the theme um, from a lot of the new investment opportunities are into energy transition um, and, you know, and kind of deharmonization and just trying to make the product cleaner. But just, you know, thinking about, you know, your history with respect to portfolio management, 
Um, are there any you know assets or whatnot that are in the existing portfolio today that you feel like um, uh, you know could be could be could be sold or divested um, to maybe improve the overall kind of footprint um, as, as you kind of think about that long term long term kind of transitional strategy and also help fund the rest of the investments. Hi, Alex. It's Don here. Um, I think you've seen us uh, recycle capital here over the past several years. I think we're showing a willingness and, and an adeptness at that. Um, whenever we, we start looking at our growth versus our internal capacity, we, uh, um, we, we look to minimize share count growth and we look for the cheapest source of funding um, to uh, 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 for the new projects here. So we, we will continue to scour the portfolio um, and look for you know, for asset sale opportunities um, to fund anything beyond our internal capacity, which is probably in the five to six billion dollar a year range. Um, that said, we're we're into the, the pretty good stuff now. Um, we have to be cognizant of the tax consequences. Um, the optionality embedded in our assets and the network value that, that Tracy alluded to and Stan has alluded to earlier, where you know, we've got you know, a dozen and a half pipelines across uh, across the system and taking a piece out or, or certain components of it actually um, detracts from the overall network value there. So uh, something we'll look at, but there is nothing jumping out uh, of any magnitude right now where um, where we think it's uh, it's a candidate for that, but. Anytime we're looking at uh, at investing beyond internal capacity, it's it's something we uh, um, will evaluate. Great, thanks. Best of luck. Thank you. Thanks, Alex. Ladies and gentlemen, this concludes the question and answer session. If there are any further questions, please contact Investor Relations at TC Energy. I will now turn the call over to Francois Poirier. Please go ahead, Mr. Poirier. Thank you. So in summary, during the first half of 2021, our commitment to operational excellence and the strong demand for our services translated into record financial results. As we advance our $21 billion secured capital program and numerous other organic growth opportunities, we expect to build on our long track record of growing earnings, cash flow, and dividends per share. With an irreplaceable asset footprint, extensive technical expertise, substantial internally generated cash, and a solid balance sheet, we are well positioned to prosper irrespective of the pace or direction energy transition takes. Looking forward, we'll continue to focus on safety, sustainability, working according to our values, and responding quickly to market signals and signposts. Now, before closing, um, I would like to acknowledge that this is Don's last quarterly conference call. He's stepping down as CFO on July 31st and will retire on November 1st after 27 years with the company. As a long-standing and deeply respected member of our senior management team, Don has played a significant role in our strategic direction, our growth, our financial strength, and our ability to have fun while we're doing it. Thank you, Don. On behalf of the entire executive team and on behalf of our board of directors. On August 1st, Joel Hunter will be assuming the role of Executive Vice President and CFO. Joel has been with TC Energy for 24 years, working closely with Don and making a significant contribution to the company's success 
in raising capital, executing on key initiatives, and navigating major market events and industry shifts. I am confident he will maintain the disciplined approach to our financial strength, risk preferences, and capital allocation decisions as we continue to execute on our vision to be North America's premier energy infrastructure company now and in the future. That concludes my remarks, and thanks very much for joining us today. We really appreciate your ongoing interest and support and look forward to speaking again with you soon. This concludes today's conference call. You may disconnect your lines. Thank you for participating and have a pleasant day. BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Thank you for listening to TSX Quarterly. If you enjoyed the cast, remember to leave a good rating. And remember, for any additional inquiries, please consult the company's investor relations section on their website. See you next time.